Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 25th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB affirmed a ruling that photocopiers are not required to be registered when they gather up medical records in its second en banc decision on this topic. Photocopy services are required to be registered and bonded under the California Business and Professions Code. However, the code exempts a member of the state bar or his or her employees, agents, or independent contractors from registration requirements. This case involved a photocopy lien claimant's contention that it was exempt from being registered and bonded. The applicant, Rogelio Cornejo, filed two applications for adjudication of claim. Both were jointly settled by a compromise and release agreement. The defendant agreed in the settlement agreement to pay, adjust, or litigate any and all liens with the WCAB retaining jurisdiction in the event of a dispute. Western Imaging Services filed a lien claim for copy services. The company was not registered and bonded at the time. That is the reason the work comp judge disallowed the lien claimant. But the WCAB reversed in the first end-bank decision of Corneo versus Unique Cafe and the Zenith Insurance Company. The WCAB held that the code requirements by its own terms does not apply when the lien claimant is an agent or independent contractor of a member of the state bar at the time the documents are photocopied. As an agreed party for the first time, Zenith Insurance filed a petition for reconsideration of the December 22nd en banc decision. A number of additional arguments were presented hoping to convince the WCAB to change its opinion. But after review of all of the arguments, the WCAB affirmed its prior December decision. And now our crime report. A suspected smuggler's recent attempt to bring hundreds of counterfeit oxycodone pills into California has raised serious concerns because the pills turned out to be ultra-deadly fentanyl. The seizure is believed to be the first time that federal officials along the California-Mexico border have intercepted counterfeit oxycodone tablets containing fentanyl. In Sacramento, there have been dozens of overdoses and at least 11 deaths in which individuals believed they were consuming the prescription painkiller Norco, but instead these counterfeit tablets contain fentanyl. Sergio Linyuntang Mendoza Bohan of Tijuana, Mexico was arraigned in federal court in San Diego on a charge that he unlawfully imported a controlled substance. Bohan allegedly attempted to smuggle more than a thousand tablets of fentanyl that were labeled as oxycodone. During his post-arrest statement, Bohan admitted that he knew that the tablets were oxy and that he was attempting to smuggle the oxycodone into the United States. However, the Drug Enforcement Administration Laboratory confirmed that the pills contained fentanyl and not oxycodone. Unsuspecting individuals who illegally purchase oxycodone could potentially die from the ingestion of what turns out to be fentanyl tablets. Even minuscule amounts of fentanyl can have devastating consequences for those who abuse it or literally even touch it. The drug and its analogs are being produced to a large extent in China and can be 100 times more potent than morphine.
The Mexican drug cartels, including Sinaloa, are purchasing fentanyl directly from China and producing fentanyl from precursors sourced from China. In some parts of the country, heroin is being spiked with fentanyl or being replaced by fentanyl. Fentanyl generates greater profits than heroin. This case is being investigated by the San Diego Pharmaceutical Task Force, a group formed in 2012. Members include agents from the DEA, <clears throat> HSI, the California Department of Justice, Bureau of Investigation, the San Diego Sheriff's Department, and the United States Attorney's Office. 54-year-old Juan P. Gutierrez of Salinas has been sentenced on two counts of making a material misrepresentation in order to obtain a lower workers' compensation insurance and one count of willfully failing to file payroll tax returns with intent to evade tax. Gutierrez conducted business under the name of Costa Pacific Roofing. An investigation discovered that Gutierrez committed premium fraud by falsely reporting he had no employees and no payroll. Gutierrez registered with the Employment Development Department as an employer and reported wages for only the first three quarters of the first year. The account was later closed due to inactivity. Audits were completed by the California Department of Insurance and the Employment Development Department based upon documentation and evidence of employees' wages during the charge time period. The court placed Gutierrez on felony probation for a stipulated term of 10 years, with restitution estimated at over $718,000. A victim restitution order in the amount of $392,224 is ordered to be paid to the State Compensation Insurance Fund. The court also ordered Gutierrez to serve 250 days in the county jail, pay over $20,000 in fines, and be subject to a search by any probation or peace officer. Workers' compensation medical care in California is based upon evidence-based medicine, or EBM. This approach to medical treatment is intended to optimize decision-making by emphasizing the use of evidence from well-designed and conducted research. EBM is regarded as the gold standard of clinical practice, but Scientific integrity just took another hit when an Australian researcher received a two-year suspended sentence after pleading guilty to 17 fraud-related charges. Neuroscientist Bruce Murdoch published an article in the highly reputable European Journal of Neurology heralding a breakthrough in the treatment of Parkinson's disease but a judge concluded there was no evidence that Murdoch had even conducted the clinical trial on which his supposed findings were based. Plus, Murdoch forged consent forms for study participants, one of whom was dead at the time the study took place. Plus, Murdoch fraudulently accepted public and private research money for the bogus study. While criminal cases against scientists are rare, they are increasing. Jail time is even rarer, but not unheard of. Last July, Dong Fu Han, a former biomedical scientist at Iowa State University, pleaded guilty to two felony charges of making false statements to obtain a National Institute of Health research grant. 
He was sentenced to more than four years in prison. Hahn admitted to falsifying the results of several vaccine experiments, in some cases spiking blood samples with HIV antibodies so that the animals appeared to develop an immunity to the virus. In 2006, Eric Pohlman, an expert on aging and obesity at the University of Vermont, became the first American scientist sentenced to jail for research misconduct not involving fatalities. He received a one-year plus one-day prison term for fraudulent obesity research that stunningly spanned over a decade. Four years later, Scott Rubin, a prominent Massachusetts anesthesiologist and researcher, was found to have faked data in at least 21 studies. Several of them touted positive results from popular painkiller medications. Rubin received six months in prison. Professor Huang Wu Suk, a highly regarded, highly funded South Korean researcher at Seoul National University, achieved international fame for his work on embryonic stem cells. His reputation quickly unraveled and his research activities were halted when his success was mired in scandal, particularly when it emerged that many of his research data were fabricated. The blog Retraction Watch, run by the Center for Scientific Integrity, does keep an unofficial list of the worst offenders. Of the top 30, 28 of them are male. By far the most retractions belong to Yoshitka Fuji, with a mind-blowing 183 retractions. He's an anesthesiologist formerly of Toho University in Tokyo. His fraudulent research on responses to drugs after surgery spanned 20 years. And then there's the problem of the replication crisis in science. Reproducibility is the ability of an entire experiment or study to be duplicated either by the same researcher or by someone else working independently. Reproducing an experiment is called replicating it. Reproducibility is one of the main principles of the scientific method. But a recent article in The Economist pointed out that a rule of thumb among biotechnology venture capitalists is that half of public research cannot be replicated. Even that may be optimistic. Last year, researchers at one biotech firm, Amgen, found that they could reproduce just six of 53 landmark studies in cancer research. Earlier, a group at Bayer, a drug company, managed to repeat just a quarter of 67 similarly important papers. Failures to prove a hypothesis are rarely even offered for publication, let alone accepted. But negative results now account for only 14% of published papers, down from 30% in 1990. Yet knowing what is false is as important to science as knowing what is true. And in regulatory news, the Department of Industrial Relations has issued a report that shows the number of Californians who died on the job decreased in 2014. Over the past 10 years, workplace fatalities remain below the average rate of fatalities prior to 2008, when the last recession began. 
There were 344 fatal injuries on the job in California in 2014, compared to 396 in 2013 and 375 in 2012. Over one-third of all California workplace deaths in 2014 occurred in transportation incidents. One in five of all California workplace deaths were attributed to violent acts. One in five were attributed to trips, slips, and falls, and fatal workplace injuries among Latino workers decreased to 130 from 194 in 2013 and 137 in 2012. The high rate of workplace fatalities for Latinos continues to be an area the department is tracking closely. Over the past six years, the DIR has increased workplace safety outreach and education to Spanish-speaking workers with a focus on high-hazard work. The census is conducted annually by DIR in conjunction with the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. The DWC has posted on its website fact sheets and claim forms for injured workers in Chinese, Korean, Tagalog, and Vietnamese. The documents were previously only available in English and Spanish. The fact sheets include questions and answers regarding temporary and permanent disability, qualified medical evaluators and agreed medical evaluators, utilization review, and the Uninsured Employers Benefit Trust Fund. The DWC-1 claim form has also been translated. The translations were produced pursuant to AB-438, which requires the DWC to make available workers' compensation information in the four specified languages. The 1973 California Daimoli Alatori Bilingual Services Act requires that all state agencies translate materials to any language spoken by 5% or more of those served. Previously, the Labor Code mandated that some of the workers' compensation forms be prepared in English and Spanish and was silent as to any other language. The obligation of the DWC was clarified by AB 438, which provides that both the DWC and the DIR shall be subject to the Daimoli Alatori Bilingual Services Act for purposes of the forms and notices. The bill also required the administrative director to make recommendations regarding any other documents that should be translated into languages other than English to the legislature. The DWC began translating materials before the AB 438 January 2018 deadline, and additional materials are in progress. Among them are the application for the Return to Work Supplement Program, the Supplemental Job Displacement Non-Transferable Voucher, and a glossary of terms relevant to workers' compensation. The translated forums and guides can be found on the DWC's website. And in medical news, following the widespread publicity behind the NFL concussion claims and now the concussion movie released last December, there is intense interest in immediately diagnosing a concussion following head trauma. The newly approved device uses infrared cameras to track eye movements and promises to help detect concussions in one minute. The device will help answer questions about the care needed by athletes and others following a blow to the head. Symptoms of concussion can vary from headaches and confusion to slurred speech and vomiting. 
In certain instances, symptoms can take days to appear. Thus, concussions can be difficult to diagnose, leaving athletes at higher risk of a more serious brain injury if they continue to perform job duties while concussed. Now, Boston-based neurotechnology company SyncThink has clearance from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for its device iSync. This is the first of its kind to get the green light from the FDA amid growing concerns over brain injuries in contact sports. With this device, the user puts on a virtual reality headset connected to a computer tablet with a moving circle appearing in the display. As the user follows the circle, the cameras follow the eyes and the data collected is compared against a baseline of normal eye movement. Head trauma affects the brain's anticipatory neural network, which guides human reactions, and the tool focuses on analyzing the visual response. The company has been working with the U.S. military and university sports teams on the device, which costs $25,000. And it is not the only company looking at such equipment. New York-based Oculogica is also developing eye-tracking technology to help detect concussions and traumatic brain injury. The company's iBox technology works by detecting patterns of abnormal eye movements and unlocks the potential to not only localize brain injury, but also to assess its severity. The nation's largest insurer said it would pull out of the near, nearly all of the Affordable Care Act's exchanges, signaling continued instability in Obamacare as it heads towards the fourth year. The chief executive said that United Health Group will pair its presence from 34 states this year to only a handful in 2017 during the company's 2016 first quarter earnings conference call. The company said that the smaller overall market size and shorter-term higher-risk profile within this market segment continue to suggest it cannot broadly serve this market on an effective and sustained basis. United Health increased its projected loss on the 2016 exchange business to $650 million from around $525 million amid signs that new enrollees' health status appeared worse. United Health said it had almost 800,000 exchange enrollees at the end of the first quarter. So far, regulators in more than a dozen states have disclosed that United Health will withdraw from their health law marketplaces. The departure of United Health would reduce the number of options for some consumers, particularly in certain rural and southern regions of the United States. In some cases, marketplace consumers might have only one insurer option unless a new entrant emerges. A spokesman for the Federal Department of Health and Human Services said that it has full confidence that the marketplaces will continue to thrive for years ahead. The exchange business reflects a small share of UnitedHealth's overall portfolio, and the company reported better-than-expected earnings for the first quarter. Like UnitedHealth, a number of insurers saw significant losses in 2015 on the exchanges, and many sought rate increases and tweaked their offerings for 2016 in hopes of improving results. Many of the nonprofit cooperative insurers created by the law have already folded, 
but several of the remaining ones are in challenging financial positions, making their role in 2017 uncertain. Insurers also face a new challenge in 2017 because a reinsurance program created by the law, which helped reduce risk for the companies, is set to sunset. Analysts expect Blue Cross and Blue Shield insurers, the backbone of the exchanges in many states, to generally remain in the ACA marketplace in 2017. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.